This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Now in the immediate context of chapter 18, we're going to be reading starting in verse 15, but the immediate context is on the tail end of the passage verses 10 through 14 where Jesus is warning us not to despise one another. Rather, we must go and seek out those who are wandering off, those who are drifting away. So taking into view what Jesus said to us last week and thinking about today's passage, essentially we're going to be looking at Jesus say, you know, if one does wander off and sins against another one of you that you are to forgive. That's the big idea that we're going to be unpacking today. So the following verses that we're looking at today puts into practice what we looked at last week in verses 10 through 14. And what I mean by wandering away, I'm going to say that a lot today, wandering away, wandering off as a sheep is how Jesus looks at it there in 10 through 14, is someone who's not submitting to God in obedience and not loving their brothers and sisters as they should, not treating others as they should. They're, they're drifting away into disobedience. They're wandering off and they must experience repentance in order to be rightly relating back to God and neighbor once again. So that's what I'm out wandering off. Let me pray and, and we'll get going. Jesus, Lord, I ask for your help and your power and your strength, Lord, to reside on me and all of us as we hear what it is that you have to say to the Axis Church and its friends today. Lord, I ask that you let us have reverence as we open your word. Lord, would you give us the posture of student and would the word be that of the master teacher? And would we hear what it is that you have to say and not excuse it and not try to modify it, but that we would take it as the authority over us and that we would adjust ourselves in light of its truth and not try to adjust your truth in light of ourselves. Lord, help us in this way and in every way that we consider life in Scripture. Lord, open our eyes and our ears where we see you, where we hear you, but most importantly, open our hearts so that we experience you. Change us. Move in our time together, please, today. We need you. Please teach us. In Christ's name, amen. The rebel flag, the Confederate flag, Racism, even the same-sex marriage ruling made by the Supreme Court this week. There's a lot of opinions. Uh, there's a lot of perspectives. A lot of relationships have been changed over the course of the last month, June 2015. A lot of things have changed in how we relate to one another. There's a lot of opinions there's a lot of perspectives. There's been a lot said. Perhaps there's been a lot of silence. There's been too little said. Perhaps in some situations there's been too much that's been said. There's been a lot done. Perhaps there's been too little done. 
if anything, not enough. I mean, in the days that we find ourselves living in today, at this very moment in time, in America, in Nashville, Tennessee, I often wonder, and I imagine that you do as well, how can we honestly ever move forward together? Where do we go from here? What does it look like for us to move forward together? I believe that there is only one way that we can honestly, truly move forward together. I mean, perhaps there are a number of ways that we can move forward through this from the point that we find ourselves in, but not together. And my hope and my dream, my, my passion is to see us move together through all of this. This is something I, I dream of. I honestly do. I, I love unity and I hate division. I hate hostility. I love agreement. And the only one way that I see that we can truly move together forward is by considering true forgiveness, or as Jesus is going to tell us here in a moment, forgiving from the heart, truly forgiving one another. We must move forward together through our culture wars and through our politics and through our religion and the big culture, but then even in the smaller culture here at the Axis Church, we as a church, the only way that we can move together as a church, move forward together into the tremendously bright future that I believe that we have, is that we learn how to forgive. You see, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We have this in common. We've all messed up at least one time in our life, all right? In the last hour, we all have, okay? All right? We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to hurt each other. So what we can do is we can find somewhere else to go to church. We can find another spouse. We can find another neighborhood. We can find another career. We can find another employer. We can, we can, we can continue to run from things and, and try to find a better way somewhere. Or we could live in the moment, in the present rightly handling forgiveness and we can work together when we do fail each other because it will happen it's just what we do when it does happen forgiveness i believe is the one way where we can move forward together and jesus guides us through this very challenging task today the task of forgiving others look together let's look in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus is saying this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's not an open letter on social media or blogs. It's typically not how we do things today. But he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. You have literally saved your brother. Not in the big, like, sin saved, but you have brought back into the community. You have helped. You have rescued your brother. And this is addressing you as singular. The individual disciple who is aware of his brother, his sister, 
his fellow disciples sin, he must accept that it is his responsibility to do something about it. So here in this very passage, we see the benefit of the Christian community. Here in this very passage, we see a picture of what a tremendous benefit others are in our lives as they help us fight the ever so natural drift towards sinfulness. Now in a moment, we're going to deal with how to forgive someone who has harmed us personally. But here, this particular passage, this verse is dealing with bringing back someone, saving, helping, gaining a brother back from them going away too far, going away and injuring themselves in some way. Jesus tells us to go to the individual. And what's implied here is to go graciously. It's to go tenderly, guiding our brother or sister towards their sin, telling them of their sin, as well as taking them to the cross, to Jesus in repentance. And if he receives it, if he receives the caution, and if he turns in humility towards Jesus and towards the community in repentance and forgiveness, you've gained or saved your brother or sister back. This is spoken of often in Proverbs where the community... Uh, advisors, helpers provide wisdom and insight. Uh, Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It hurts. It's a wound. But man, it's such a blessing for our health in the big picture. Proverbs 16.24 says, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. It's a benefit when we can go to our brother or sister and bring them back Back to God, back to the church community. That's the ideal. And this is the way I wish it worked every single time for me, as people confront me, for you, as people confront you. But, verse 16, but if he does not listen, then you take one, maybe two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, the aim here is to gain back your brother, to win back, to pull back from danger your brother or sister. So the picture is restoration. It's, it's not punishment. And a lot of times you see this played out relationally as well as in the church as a punishment and not in the heart of wanting to see someone completely and fully restored. This is to gain back a friend or a brother. This isn't to produce an enemy. And as we go and as we confront, we must be very intentional to watch out for ourselves. We have to be very careful as we confront others, even in this very way, because you can easily control and manipulate someone through the power of being in the know of their sin. You're, you're in essence, you're controlling their reputation and how you handle what you know that they've done. Galatians 6 speaks to this. Paul, later on in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle tells us this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual, you who are healthy, should restore, not condemn, not put in time out. You are to restore him. And here's how you do it. This is the culture that you do it with. In a spirit of gentleness. Again, this is rarely handled this way, but this is the way we're told to. And then this warning, keep watch on yourself. 
as you confront this person, lest you too be tempted. The temptation there is not to sin in the same way that they're sinning, but that you would arrogantly, authoritatively become some sort of self-righteous person confronting them in their sin. And don't add to their burden. Bear one another's burdens. Don't add to their shoulders what they're feeling already. Help them. Lighten the load and the burden with them and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, this is how Christ helps us. So as we confront with restoration in mind and not just justice, they got to get what they deserve. Not just justice here, not mere justice is being played out, but restoration is what we're really looking for as we confront, be very careful and humble not to be the authority here, but yet we're seeking minimum publicity. And this is certainly not how things are handled today, but our culture doesn't shape or inform how we are to live or forgive, the Bible does, and this is what we're submitting ourselves to today. So the erring uh, brother or sister, the wandering brother or sister, they must be approached alone or at most with only one or two others. And only if that fails is it necessary to involve the church, the local congregation, as we'll see in a moment. It's to be expected here, you get as Jesus is teaching this, that it's, it's to be expected that the wandering brother will listen to the counsel and the concern of the fellow disciples. But if he doesn't, if he refuses to heed the guidance of his church family in regards to his sin, if they stay unrepentant and hard-hearted and continuing to excuse and become combative regarding their sin, if he does not turn back in repentance and humility, the only course remains to sever the fellowship with this person, though still with the hope that this would jolt him. That this would awaken them up to repentance and humility and bring about restoration. My conviction is the only time this has to happen should be when there are tears and a heavy broken heart on behalf of the one who's wandering away. It should not be in the justice-seeking, arrogant, authoritative position and posture of, of, of a self-righteous person or character, but it should be with weeping and a heavy heart pleading with someone to return, but this is rarely found today. But the Spirit, we don't have to go with just what's typical now. We can believe and we can pray for the Spirit to do greater things than what we see played out most typically. This can happen. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, them meaning the one person, at most two or three, then you tell it to the church, you bring it to the elders. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat him as a pagan, in other words, someone who is lost. So this is rather odd, admittedly, to see Jesus use this language. Uh, it's surprising to hear Jesus say this because Jesus is known to be a friend of tax collectors 
and Gentiles. He's shown radical sympathy towards the Gentiles already through our time in Matthew. It's been clearly and dramatically displayed and demonstrated. This was most likely Jesus using a traditional Jewish phrase that they would have understood as expulsion. Jesus wasn't endorsing their behavior and how they treat outsiders because he treated them differently and he calls us to treat them differently too in in good ways, gracious ways. He's speaking to how you handle outsiders. That's how you should be handling these insiders who are acting like that. Be rough on the guys on the inside who claim to know God and to be obedient. Don't be rough on the outsiders. That's essentially what's happening here. But this is a removal of partnership or membership with this person. It's severing ties of fellowship with this person. Not as a never come back again. You're going to get what's coming to you. That's not the heart. The heart is still with the hope that they will respond in humility and be invited back into the church community. That they would humble themselves and be welcomed into a place where there's friendship and openness, where others are fighting for their pursuit of God in the local church, where others are helping them fight this drift. This is tough love. This is difficult. This, this is a wound that hurts but it becomes health in the big picture. Just like disciplining children, a parent knows it's not out of hate that they discipline. Though it seems that way in the moment, perhaps, for that person, that individual, that little child, but in the big picture, they learn the heart of that parent. All of these actions are rooted by grace out of love and not hate. For that child, this is similar. And then Jesus lets us in on what is possible through his power and presence as we confront wandering brothers and sisters. This is shockingly beautiful and amazing what he says here. Look in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if Two, again, we've talked about like one, if if two or three. This is comforting. He says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Context is bringing back a wanderer. Bringing back someone who is drifting towards sin. There's radical truth here of what's possible through Jesus. You, the church, you is plural there. It's different than earlier in the passage. This is church. This is plural. We have a right and a responsibility and a calling here to take serious action for the sake of bringing back a brother or a sister who is drifting away, who's wandering away. So the local church here has the authority to bring down heaven to bear, to bring down the power and authority of heaven to bear on these situations where one is drifting. I mean, this is powerful. 
This is not just one man confronting one woman or a man confronting a man. This is, this is, man, heaven is paying attention and infusing this moment where you, out of compassion for this wandering, drifting person, show up and confront them. Jesus is present, pleading with the lost sheep to come back into the fold. Man, that's powerful. That's encouraging. Jesus promises his continued presence to be among his people. This ensures that their united prayer will be effective, though this, of course, is not just an automatic guarantee that any time you have two people pray that it's going to be granted to them, answered to them favorably, but only such as are compatible with gathering in my name and fit for my Father who is in heaven. But notice what he says there, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. This language that he uses implies an extraordinary claim from Jesus, the man. It states that he is, in fact, more than a man. It states, in fact, that Jesus is more than just a historic figure. In saying this and using this language, Jesus is distinguishing himself as different from every other human being. Jesus is, in essence, saying, I'm God, and I can be everywhere at one time, omnipresent, present, Anywhere, everywhere, all at the same time. Jesus is God, and here he is speaking beyond the cross. Here he's speaking to when his spirit will be poured out on the church, and he will be in every single place, residing in believers' hearts as well. You can read about this in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. It's beautiful. This is what he's speaking of, and he's here with us. This is a radical truth that Jesus somehow is with us Now, here, it's humbling, it's powerful, it's a wonderful truth. But now here in this text, there's a shift at this point in the teaching of Jesus. Here the focus moves on how the disciples should respond to another disciple's wrongdoing when it hurts other people, when it hurts other disciples. So this is no longer bringing back one to save them to bring them back, to to help them. This is how do you move forward with someone who hurts you? How do I move forward when I've been wounded by somebody? Well, the answer in context lies in forgiveness. The only question then is, is there a limit? At what point do we stop forgiving because we're enabling or empowering? It's a good question. Peter had the same question. Look at verse 21. Old Peter, here we go. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, are we talking like, and he kind of chuckles here, like seven times? Because that's, that's hyperbole. He's exaggerating. Like he's going well beyond what was popular thought at the time. It was just, just a few years later, it was established by rabbis in this setting that three times to forgive someone is more than gracious. If they, if they offend you more than three times, we wouldn't be friends. No one in this room would be friends if this is how we did. <laughs> if it's be gone, right? Three times. If, if you offend someone, if someone offends you three times, you are being gracious. 
to wait that long, but then after that, you sever and you move on. Peter is thinking, I'm going to show Jesus how big I think this forgiveness thing can get. Seven times? Is that enough to forgive someone? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Uh, 77 it reads better in the original language of the Greek here than 70 times 7, which is 490, which perhaps some of your translations say. But the point is, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. If you're keeping record, you're not truly releasing that person in forgiveness. Again, this is not what people expected from a rabbi. What they expected from a rabbi was three. And they're like, oh, he's so gracious. Or like Peter, seven. It's like, oh, that's a little overkill. Seventy-seven times. He hears Peter and he dismisses his thought and he goes further than Peter ever imagined possible. And this demand to forgive this way is explained and made more memorable in the following parable. You know, parables are, are stories that Jesus tells about a, a, a scriptural biblical truth in order for it to stick. He kind of he like brings it to life so that we remember it. That's what Jesus does. He often uses these parables. And here we have a, a parable from a wonderful teacher, Jesus. Let's look here together in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. So one king, one master, and a lot of servants that he has open accounts with. When he began to settle, and there was this one guy that was brought to him who owed him, this is crazy by the way, 10,000 talents. If we hear Jesus say that, we think, that's not even possible. Like, there's no way. No one, you, you can't borrow that much money. You can't spend that much money. I mean, this was such an exaggerated amount. Like, this was an unreasonable amount of debt. This was a huge deal to owe anyone this much money. It's hard to imagine how he could borrow this amount much less how anyone could afford to lend this amount, much less, as we're going to see, how someone could forgive and not have this money received back in payment, how they could forgive this amount. I mean, one talent, to give you perspective, one talent was a small fortune. Most of us in this room would long to have a talent, not a skill. You're all skilled, but a talent is in regards to the currency, okay? 10,000 talents was beyond comprehension for most masters, much less ordinary people, the servants, because this is a servant who owes this much. Look at verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, wow, with his wife and his children and all that he had, and on top of being sold, they still had to make payment. So the servant does what you would do, probably, what I know I would do. And I've done this before over 100 bucks. I can't imagine doing it over 10,000 talents. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, pleading with him, have patience with me. He's not asking for forgiveness of this loan. He's asking for just... just be merciful to me. Just, just wait. Just hold off. I'll pay you back. 
Be patient with me. I will pay you everything. I'm good for it. I will get it back to you somehow. Just be merciful to me. And then out of pity, literally out of compassion, the master of that servant released him, did not jail him, and he did not say, okay, you can wait to pay me. You've got three years and 20% interest to get it back to me. He released him and he forgave him the debt. The debt still remains. It's money that's still owed. The master assumes the debt. The master absorbed the debt personally. It cost the master to not cost the servant. This is grace. Mercy is giving you a time to pay it back. Grace is someone absorbing it for you on your behalf. Radical of this master to treat a servant this way. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to strangle him and choke him and say, you're going to pay me all that you owe me. Now this was a reasonable amount of debt, but it still was significant, but nothing like what he had just been released from. A hundred denarii is a small amount. Typically, it's, I mean, it was a hundred days wages. It was a third of your paycheck that you owed. But that's a mere six hundred thousandth. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the amount that he was just forgiven of. So the fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him. Very typical. I mean, this just happened for this guy. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Just have patience. I'll pay you back. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt back. And then the other fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were troubled. They were distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Uh Uh-oh. Then this master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus hits us more than between the eyes. He hits us in our heart right here. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, and then he qualifies it from your heart, which I say, truly forgive. The point here, God is not going to treat an unforgiving spirit lightly. God takes forgiveness and unforgiveness heavily. He takes it as a big deal, as significant. And Jesus here is calling us to check our hearts. Jesus is telling us 
that if we can't forgive one another, we can't say that we have truly experienced forgiveness from God. The bottom line is that we are to forgive because we have been forgiven by God. And no offense against us, whether it's something that someone's done to us that's harmed us or someone's lack of action that's harmed us. No offense against us can remotely compare with the immeasurable amount of forgiveness that we find in Christ and that we ourselves have been forgiven of by God. I mean, in light of God's immeasurable grace towards us, it's ludicrous. And to use Jesus's word, it is wicked for us to refuse to forgive others. I mean, I see it that the ability that we have in forgiving others tells us of the level of which that we're aware of how much we ourselves have been forgiven by God. I mean, how can we celebrate being forgiven of our cosmic treason before the holy God and not forgive our friend or even our most feared enemy? Well, that's easier said than done, for sure. I agree. And I would even go further to say it's impossible to do unless you have experienced a higher and greater amount of forgiveness yourself. We forgive not because it's the right thing to do. That's just moralism. It's not from the heart. That's just saying it with your lips. You, you don't forgive because it's the reasonable thing to do because often, most often, forgiveness isn't reasonable. It's not fair. We forgive because we have been forgiven a much greater amount. We show mercy because we have been shown Mercy. We are gracious because we have received grace. Christian, because you have been forgiven much by God through Jesus, you should be propelled to forgive others through Jesus and the power of his spirit that's working within you. Simply put, the one who does not and cannot forgive others does not understand the forgiveness that they themselves have in Christ. And they don't understand the amount of which they have been forgiven. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, it's not necessarily that you must forgive and forget experiences. But what I think is necessary, what I believe is being called to here is that we forgive and gospel those experiences. The gospel works in us to free us to forgive. The gospel goes to work in us, helping us have compassion, helping us have genuine love toward people that we need to forgive. For forgiving people who harm us is one of the most difficult things to do in life. And the truth is, the deeper the wound, the more challenging it is to forgive others. Quite frankly, if you can forgive easily, you haven't been truly wounded by that person. The harder it is to forgive tells you how deep the wound and the offense truly is. And we often feel confused about what real forgiveness looks like. I mean, can you think of someone that you need to forgive? Think about someone that you perhaps have distanced yourself from. Someone that you just feel awkwardly uncomfortable around. Someone who you used to be really close to, but then that thing happened, and now you no longer enjoy their company as you did. 
or relational conflicts that you keep playing over. You're rehearsing them over and over and over in your mind. And it's fostering this bitterness within who you are and it's changing you. Perhaps it's someone who said something or did something to you that just crushed you. And you have feelings of anger and bitterness and irritation and, and fear, anxiety. And you begin to gossip and you begin to have a critical spirit about this person. And what does it look like to actually forgive and love your enemy? What about the person who sexually abused me? What about the boss who furthered his career at the expense of mine? What about my spouse who cheated on me? What about the friend who demolished my reputation permanently? What about the person who just blatantly lied to me and is living as if it did not happen? When the gospel begins to truly take root in us, the beautiful thing of the gospel is that it begins to work itself out through us. Forgiveness is one area where the gospel must go to work in our lives, practically speaking. So I want to lead us in this way of how the gospel can move to us toward forgiveness. So the gospel, the gospel is this. It's always more, if anyone says that, but it's certainly this. The gospel begins with God making movement toward us. God takes the initiative, though he is the offended party. I mean, in the garden, in Genesis, in the, in the beginning, Genesis of your Bible, the beginning of your Bible, beginning of mankind, in the garden, Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God. They do their own thing in their own way. And God moves towards them. It's recorded in Scripture. You can read it there. God goes after Adam and says, Adam, where are you? You've changed. You're different. And Adam feels the difference. He hides and he runs away from God. He covers himself. He used to hear the sound of God coming in the cool of the day and run to him in joy. But now that he's sinned, he hears God coming in the cool of the day and he runs and he hides and he covers himself. But God doesn't do this and he doesn't allow this. Though the fact remains that, according to Isaiah, our iniquities, our sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But God does something about our iniquities. God does something about our sin, and that is another fact. You see, he had every right to condemn us. He had every right to resist us. He had every right to permanently and forever sever the relationship that we have with him, but he does not, and this is the good news of the gospel. Instead, God moves towards us. While we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. So we can summarize God's forgiveness this way. By moving toward us, God initiates and enables us to move toward him. I mean, the gospel starts with God, the offended party, moving toward us, the offenders, the sinners, the rebels. And he cancels our debt he cancels our debt by assuming that debt upon himself, upon his son, who 
was living as us, yet without sin, who experienced death on a cross, bearing the wrath and punishment and responsibility of the debt that our sin occurred. And he bears it upon himself. So therefore, he cancels our debt by placing our debt on the shoulders of his own son, and that opens us up to an opportunity for reconciliation, to have our friendship united and alive back again with our creator. And if we acknowledge our sin and we repent, we are now by faith reconciled to God, and we're able to experience the joy and delight of a friendship with him once again. That is radical grace, and that is the truth and good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then what does it look like with that being true, that gospel being true, what does it look like to experience that forgiveness and then offer forgiveness to someone else? Well, here at this point, Scripture assumes that if we truly have experienced God's forgiveness in the gospel, that we will be radical in forgiving others. By contrast, if you're, if you're unforgiving and resentful and bitter towards others, it's a sure sign that you're not living out of the deep joy and freedom of the gospel. So I ask you, are you free? Are you free to forgive are you free to consider forgiveness and work through the lengthy process of forgiving someone through deep pain and wound? Our forgiveness of others is intended to mirror our forgiveness that God has given us. And the way I see forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is hand in hand walking towards the cross of Jesus Christ together. Just two sinners both pleading for mercy and pleading for grace, begging for forgiveness. This is the way that I see what forgiveness is. It's in community, walking, both wounded in some way, walking to Jesus. And our heart's desire is not to simply forgive the offense, but ultimately to see the other person reconciled to God and to us. I mean, we want to see the power of sin destroyed in their life and our life and to see a brother and a sister truly gained back. And we can't make this happen, but the Spirit can. And we're to pray for it, we're to long for it, and we're to welcome it. But again, where do we find the power to do this? How do we find the grace and strength to long for restoration when we've been hurt? The answer, of course, is the gospel. The gospel does not only show us how to forgive, but it empowers us with the ability to forgive. And you know, when we say, I just can't forgive that person, you just don't know what they did to me. We're essentially saying, in that moment, that person's sin is greater than my sin. Our awareness of our own sin is very small. And our awareness of, of another person's sin is very big in that moment. And our underlying feeling is that we deserve to be forgiven. But that person, that person who offended us, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Not yet. They need to pay it back first, which isn't forgiveness. And in that moment, we're living with a very small view of God's holiness and a small view of our own sin and a small view of the cross of Christ and the forgiveness that's possible there. And we're living with a huge, huge view of our own self-righteousness. And we're living with a huge view of someone else's sin. 
But we, when we embrace a gospel perspective, when we begin to gospel ourselves in these moments and our sin, we recognize that the sin debt that God has forgiven on our behalf is greater, greater than any sin that's ever been committed against us. And it's as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness that we begin to see more clearly the distance between his perfection and our imperfection. Or from his righteousness and perfection and where we often have to seek forgiveness because, man, we're still struggling through this as sinners. You see how different he is in his perfection and how flawed we are living day to day and how much we offend and how many we offend It's when you look at a perfect holy God and his perfection that you see, oh, man, I'm in need too. How can I not forgive when I've been forgiven by that guy? How can I not, as a sinner, offer forgiveness to this other sinner? As the significance of Jesus' work on the cross grows in our own mind and heart, our willingness and ability to see full restoration with others will also grow. The capacity that we see that we can forgive is stretched. I mean, after all, if, if God forgave the massive offense of our sin against him, how could we not forgive the sin of others? Which, remember, it may be severe. It may be terrible. It may be things that would blow my mind to even consider. Much deeper pain than I've ever experienced. Though it be severe, it still pales in comparison of our own guilt before a holy and righteous God. Maybe you want to forgive. Maybe maybe you're considering it, but you can't imagine, you can't imagine your heart ever getting there. One, I appreciate the honesty that you're considering it with. Two, I think it's a work of the Spirit that you're even considering it. And I'll be encouraged by that. And thirdly, I I would ask you to invite God into that deep and painful place. Invite him there and say, God, I can't can't imagine forgiving that person for this. I I can't. But if, if you're willing to mess with it and you're willing to do it and you're willing to work in me in that way, I invite you into this. But I can't do it. There's no way that I could. But if you work... I guess anything becomes possible. That humble faith, inviting him in, knowing that forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is costly. I mean, it's canceling a debt that we had every right to demand payment of. It's absorbing pain. It's absorbing hurt and shame and grief of someone else's sin against us without seeing them suffer in the same way. Forgiveness means losing the leverage that we would otherwise have in that relationship. And that's usually why we don't choose to forgive is because of the power it gives us. It means longing for repentance and restoration even though we never cause the initial separation. But friends, is this not exactly how God acted toward us in Christ? And through the gospel, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the same thing for others. He calls the Holy Spirit our helper for even in moments like this, where we need help to truly forgive the harm that's been done to us. But it's when we do this that others will be blown away and they'll be compelled to know more about the hope that you have. They'll be compared to, they'll be, they'll be, <clears throat> they'll be 
compelled to know more about where your joy and where, where your satisfaction comes from. They want to know more about the peace that you have in this situation. They'll want to know more about Jesus. And friends, there is complete forgiveness offered by God to you today. Complete forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you, by faith, call out to him, asking him for faith, leaning into him, saying, I've got doubts, I've got issues, I've got a past, and Jesus, I, I, I got I know, I got you. He's ready to forgive. I encourage you to lean in towards him and believe him and trust him as one who can forgive you. And if you're struggling with forgiving others, let's press in together towards the gospel. Let's press into greater, a greater vision of who God is in his, in his perfection and holiness. And let's consider how much we've been forgiven. Let's gospel ourselves. Let's gospel one another as we lead each other hand in hand towards the cross in these uncertain days. Pastor Jacob, please come and lead us in communion. I'm going to pray for us as we jump into this time. Jesus, thank you for not keeping us away. Thank you for not holding our sin against us and stiff-arming us. Lord, thank you for doing what was necessary so that you could forgive us. Lord, I pray that this gospel truth continues to churn in our heart and in our lives this morning, even in this moment of response as we consider communion and prepare our hearts for that. Lord, would we continue to churn over the gospel and would we be freed to forgive, knowing that you have forgiven us of so much more. Lord, help us grasp your forgiveness of us. Help us grasp your holiness and help us be patient and bear with our brothers and bear with our sisters as we both are sinning, longing for you to come and restore all things and take away all brokenness. Lord, help us walk towards you together. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help us as we forgive the debt of those that we owe to others. In Christ's name, amen.